I'm Michael, one of Michael Flake, one of the other pastors here. Great to be together as a church family. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there's room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us that we're all active participants as we stay on this journey together. We're all here to receive something this morning. We also all have something to give. So as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love, we can also pour out love by serving others. Today we continue our Lenten series. We've been, uh, Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter, trying to prepare ourselves to celebrate with joy the resurrection of Jesus. And the theme of our Lenten series this year is sin. Sin. That's why we set out so many extra chairs. Sin. Specifically, we're looking at what the early Christians called the seven deadly sins. The early Christians saw these as like the seven core sins. They were the sins and immoralities out of which all other immoralities grew. The early Christians thought sin, and I think they're right about this, they saw sin not so much as the symptom, but as the disease. So not, sin is not so much the things we do that displease God, it's the ways that we are in rebellion against God. Now the point of the series is this, through faith in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven and being transformed. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and we are being transformed. So that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or if you ever do come to place your faith in Jesus Christ, if you welcome him into the center of your life, if you trust your life into his hands, you are forgiven and you are being transformed. So my hope for this series is that it's going to draw all of us into a closer relationship with God as first of all, we become more aware of how much forgiveness it really takes to truly forgive us and forgive every part of us. But the second thing is that you and I would come into a closer relationship with God as we are willing to name before God some of the areas in our life where there's still work to be done, the areas where we still need God to work in our lives. So today the topic is pride. One of the seven deadly sins, pride. And with each of the seven deadly sins, there's also a corresponding Christ-like virtue. And the corresponding Christ-like virtue for pride is humility. Pride and humility. That's where we're going today. Pride and humility. From the passage we heard earlier, and then we'll take a skip over to Philippians 2 at the end. Pride and humility. Now, I'm not sure if there's anyone more qualified than me to speak on the topic today. It's going to be a long sermon if people aren't going to laugh at that. What I want to do this morning is I want to walk you through the passage that we heard earlier from Genesis. I want to tease out the nature of pride that's found in that passage. So after we tease out the nature of pride in the Genesis passage, I want to suggest four ways that with God's help we can identify and uproot pride in our lives. And then the last thing I want to do is turn our attention to Jesus, and specifically in Philippians chapter 2, turn our eyes to Jesus as the clearest example of humility. 
So I want to walk through the Genesis passage to tease out the nature of pride. I want to suggest four ways that we can identify and uproot pride with God's help and then end by looking at Jesus as the clearest example of humility. Good? All right, there's the outline. Let's do it. Genesis chapter 2, if you feel out of place because other people in the church seem to be better at you than finding, at finding stuff in the Bible, you are in luck today. We are in the second and third chapter of the Bible. You have a fighting chance of finding the second and third chapter of the Bible. Genesis 2 and 3. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Nobody is born being good at finding stuff in the Bible. Like, people who are good at it got good at it through practice, through trying, through failing, and then trying again. So this is a church where we love to help folks who aren't as far along uh, as anyone, any, everyone here at this church is willing to turn back and help people who are trying to learn the faith. So just ask for help. We'd love to help. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, and the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God puts Adam in the garden and says, you are free. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden except for that one. So he gives God, God gives the humanity amazing freedom. Now it's freedom within limits, there are limits, but within the limits there is complete freedom. Freedom to, to thrive within these limits. And this is why I think humanity loves art and why we love athletics, because that's what those are. They are the exercise of freedom within limits. There are certain limits, but within the limits you are free to do whatever you so desire, and, and the result can be beautiful. Truly beautiful. God made humanity to thrive by exercising freedom within limits. So God has set up the world as a great basketball game, a great work of art. And then we come to chapter 3. Chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We did so well through the first two chapters of the Bible. Then we come to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3 is often called the fall. Humanity's fall from a close relationship with God, the beginning of our rebellion against God. It's a rebellion that Adam and Eve began, but it's a rebellion that the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve continue to this day. Genesis chapter 3, chapter 3, oof, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the, other, any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So Eve encounters a serpent. In the New Testament, this serpent is identified as Satan. That's Revelation 12 and 20, if you want to double check me, 12, chapter 12 and chapter 20. But the New Testament identifies the serpent as Satan. Satan is the spiritual being who is God's adversary, not God's equal, but God's adversary, trying to draw all of creation into his rebellion against the creator. And as temptation often does, and as discouragement often does, in this case, it whispers, Eve, did God really tell you you can't eat from any of these trees? Verse 4, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now she got it 
almost right. If you go back and look at Genesis chapter 2, you'll see that God did, did say not to eat the fruit from one of the trees, but he didn't say anything about touching it. So this is another sermon for another day, but part of what got Adam and Eve in trouble is that they added a specific rule to what God had taught them, which is fine, but then they conflated what was their personal decision with what God actually said. That's where they got in trouble. That's a sermon for another day. Verse 5, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And with those simple words, the ancient serpent pulled humanity into his rebellion against God. Eve looked one more time at the tree that was off limits. She touched its fruit. She did not die. She handed some to Adam. He did not die. And then they took a bite. And I don't know how to describe to you what happened next except that they lost the most amazing thing imaginable in an instant. They lost a rich and life-giving relationship with God. It was like waking up from the greatest of dreams to realize that you are now living in a nightmare. The early Christians called this the fall. Humanity's fall. Humanity's fall from grace, where our relationship with God got damaged in such a way that only God could repair it. And as the early Christians studied this story, they became convinced that the key issue in the fall was pride. And I happen to agree with them that the key issue in the fall is pride. Because how did the ancient serpent tempt Eve and Adam to cross over that line and rebel against God? He used that little expression, you will be like God. You will be like God. So that may be a good working definition of pride. Pride is that thing within us that doesn't want to be human. We want to be God. We want to be God. Now, humanity is valuable. Humans are valuable. Humans are important, but we are not superior. God is superior. H humans have freedom within limits. God has freedom without limits. Now, those are slight differences, but they're really important differences. As a person, you are valuable, and your value is knit into you by your creator. You have a deep, deep value. You are important, but none of us is at the top of the food chain. None of us is at the top of the org chart. It's God who is superior, and as part of God's superiority, God enjoys freedom without limits hard to get our minds around, but God never gets tired. God never runs out of mercy. God never runs out of love. God doesn't run, run out of patience. God never gets to a situation and goes, well, golly, I don't know what to do with this. God may say golly, but he does certainly doesn't say I don't know what to do with this. So God enjoys freedom without limits. Pride is that thing within us that's not happy being human. We want to be God. At least we want to be in God's position. We aren't satisfied being valuable. We need to be the best. We're not satisfied that our value has been given to us. We, we want to earn it by excelling, by being noted and noteworthy. We're not content with freedom within limits. We're sort of tired of the limits. We want freedom without limits. 
And sometimes, frankly, we're just tired of God telling us what to do. We just don't want that. This is the nature of pride, and pride can take deep root in our lives. But the good news is that by God's grace, pride is not the end of the story. Through Jesus Christ, your sin and my sin, your pride, my pride, and its bad effects can be forgiven. Through Jesus Christ, pride and its symptoms can be uprooted in our lives. Pride and its symptoms can be replaced with humility. Through faith in Jesus, you are forgiven and being transformed. So what I want to do for the next little bit then is I want to suggest four ways that you and I might begin to follow Jesus in uprooting pride and planting humility. Ways that we might be able to identify pride or potential pride in our lives and then follow Jesus in uprooting it and planting humility. Four ways, four suggestions. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, number one, number, 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 number one. Pay attention to where you feel the need to be the best. Pay attention to where you feel the need to be the best. Now, it is a good thing to become better a better parent, a better friend, a better coach, a better teacher, a better student, a better pastor, a better boss, a better leader, a better person. It's a good thing to become better, to live into your God-given potential. But sometimes in that, we cross over a line and we need to become the best. An example of this came up some years ago. Uh, Some of you will remember this, but there was the best figure skater, at least in the United States, was named Nancy Kerrigan. Do you remember this? And one day, or you've read about it on Wikipedia, and one day uh, a guy showed up and attacked her with a police baton, and that seemed totally random. But when you followed the, the trail, it wasn't all that totally random. Um, there, was a, there was another figure skater named Tanya, who she wanted to be the best, <laughs> But she really couldn't be the best, and Nancy was sort of standing in her, in her way, and so uh, she sort of worked with this dude to go and attack uh, Nancy with a police baton. Now, if you were to take that back, you'd say, okay, now what was the sin committed there? Like physical assault? Yes, that's a sin. Uh, giving, receiving a bribe, that would be a sin. But the, original, the early Christians would say the core sin, the, the essence of what was happening there was pride. Pride, the deep need to be the best and to to get rid of people who are standing in your way. Now, look, the truth is you and I may not be paying off goons, but if if we, you may be, I'm not sure. But when we need to be the best in our class, we may resort to cheating. When we need to be the best at work, we may start to undermine other people who are succeeding. If we need to be known in the neighborhood as the best mom or the best dad, we may take out a fourth mortgage on our house so we make sure our kids have everything, every opportunity, and we give the impression of being the best. What can happen is that we start to forget that our God-given value is what is most important. Our value is God-given. Our value is not something we have to achieve through notoriety and being well-regarded and thought the best. You're in my value is God given. So you and I need to pay attention to the places where we feel the need to be the best. Number two in following Jesus, uprooting pride and planting humility, number two, recognize and respect your limits. 
recognize and respect your limits. I'm about to say something to you that I think should be on one of those inspirational posters. You know, like where there's like a ripple in the water or something like that. Here it is. You cannot be whatever you want. You cannot do whatever you want. Deal with it. Here's what I mean. I cannot be a fighter pilot. I cannot be an NBA player. I'm too tall for the first and too short for the second. I cannot stay up for 200 hours in a row. I cannot walk up here and preach a good sermon if I haven't had a lot of preparation time. Right? The point being, as a human, I have limits. And I have limitations. And being a human is not about ignoring your limits. It's about respecting your limits, respecting my limits, and growing into the person that God made us to be within those limits. Limits are not a good thing. They're not a bad thing. They're just a human thing. You have a limited amount of energy, so you need to rest. You have a limited amount of money, so you need to work hard and you need to budget well. You have a limited amount of time, so you need to identify your top priorities. And you need some self-discipline to stick with them. But you have a limited amount of self-discipline. And so you need accountability. Uh, you, you need to be able to, and I need to be able to ask for and receive forgiveness. We need grace. We need mercy to be good things. Because we're going to need grace and mercy and forgiveness along the way. We have a limited amount of intellect. And so we're going to need God's wisdom when we're faced with difficult issues, difficult moral issues, difficult life issues. It's okay to have limits. It's okay to acknowledge that you have limits. That's called being human. Number three is to remember the potential downfall of growth. Remember the potential downfall of growth. This sounds like another inspirational poster. But it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, which says this, Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. Growth is a good thing. It's a good thing to grow personally. It's a good thing to grow emotionally. It's a good thing to grow intellectually. It's a good thing to grow professionally. It's a good thing to grow spiritually. Growth is a good thing. Knowledge is a good thing. It's great to have so many doctors and professors who are experts in their field and also follow Jesus. But the scripture is making the point that if we're not careful, growth will simply inflate our egos. If we are not careful, growth will simply inflate our ego. The scripture says knowledge puffs up. And what it's talking about in the immediate context is spiritual knowledge, spiritual growth. That these people were growing in their knowledge of God and in their understanding of the Bible. And so the, the writer here, Paul, says, man, that's great and all, but make sure it doesn't puff you up. Because if we're not careful, that's what growth will do, knowledge will do. It will puff us up. It will give us a, a higher view of ourselves than we ought to have necessarily. And so the cure, Paul says, is love. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So that as you and I are growing professionally, personally, intellectually, spiritually, on one track, we kind of need to have this dual track working. And the second track, the dual track, is to grow in our love. Grow in your ability, grow in my ability to love and be loved by God. Grow in your ability, my ability to love and be loved by other people. 
so that knowledge and growth will be a good thing, not a bad thing. If we're not careful, knowledge will puff up, but love will build up. And so this dual track approach is what Paul uh, recommends. But he makes it really practical in another letter, and that's where I want to get to. Number four, number four, number, 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 number. Finally, let's get practical. Number four, follow Jesus in uprooting plot, pride and planting humility. Number four, consider the needs and hopes of others. Consider the needs and hopes of others, especially when making decisions. So here we're going to take this kind of high concept about a dual track approach, grow growth alongside love, growth in areas of life alongside growth in your love, and we're going to make it real practical. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, we're at Philippians chapter 2, that means the sermon is winding down, Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, in its immediate context, what's being talked about here is a church family. There's a church family trying to figure out how to relate to each other when their leaders disagree are, are disagreeing with one another. The leaders are disagreeing. We don't know exactly about what. Uh, that's not spelled out in the book. But they're having a disagreement, and so they're trying to figure out how to be a church family together, how to proceed in the midst of this disagreement. Now, some folks will take these verses straight out of context, which is going to be my debut rap album, straight out of context. And, and, and they will say that it's, it's wrong to, to care about your own needs, like the need for physical safety, the need to be treated lovingly. And I don't think that's what this is, is about at all. I think it's reasonable to think that the people in your life will treat you lovingly and, and not harm you physically. What's being addressed in this passage, I believe, is how to proceed in the midst of a disagreement or in the midst of, uh, if the, even if the world around you is disagreeing, how do you, how do I proceed in the midst of that? And the author says, let's just make this real practical. You need to remember and guard the needs and hopes of other people. Very practical. So when you walk in to make a decision... In your family, among your roommates, in a marriage, in your church family, in your community group, in your neighborhood block group, wherever. When you walk in to make a decision, the goal is that everybody not just walk in to guard their own interests and needs. But in fact, what love in action looks like is that I'm going to walk in ready to guard your interests and your needs and your hopes. And you walk in ready to guard my needs and my interests and my hopes. And that will be love in action. And so when you and I come into a situation with a person or with other people or whatever, and we struggle to or just flat out refuse to know and pay attention to and guard their needs and their hopes in the midst of what we're talking about, 
this is where God would hold a mirror up to us and say, well, then you still have some growing to do. This is what it looks like for you to grow in your ability to love in action. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility value others above yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. What does love in action look like? Practically a willingness to guard the hopes and needs of others, and I pray they will be willing certainly in this church family, to guard your needs and hopes as well. And this turns our attention to Jesus in the, the conclusion of that chapter that says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Sometimes we spend so much time trying to get into God's position, uh, to be like God and get into God's position. And then we look at Jesus and we realize God didn't even cling to his superiority. In fact, God gave up his superiority. He was willing to give it up in the name of love because love builds up. And the love of God is the foundation on which all of our lives can be built up. Out of love, God created the world, speaking it into being. Out of love, God knit value into you. Out of love, God did not abandon Adam and Eve in their rebellion. And in fact, out of love, God does not abandon sons of Adam and daughters of Eve in our rebellion. Out of love, God came to earth as Jesus Christ. Out of love, God gave up his superiority. Out of love, God experienced limits. Out of love, God was even willing as Jesus Christ to die. And he died as a someone who was guilty of rebellion would have died. But then out of love, Jesus conquered death. Out of love, Jesus rose from the grave. Out of love, Jesus broke the power of sin and the power of death so that you and I can walk in new life as we follow Jesus. Becoming more like Jesus, following Jesus is not about climbing up a ladder as much as it's about climbing down a ladder. It's about seeing both our value and our limitation. It's about coming to our knees and praying for and serving the needs of other people. But not on our own strength. We do it through the strength of Jesus because Jesus climbed down the ladder. Jesus came down to his knees to serve our needs so that we could then be people who are willing to come down to our knees to pray for and to serve the needs of other people. And so my question I would leave each of us with as I wrap this thing up is, where in your life do you see pride and its symptoms needing to be forgiven? Where in your life do you see pride and its symptoms needing to be forgiven, needing to be uprooted, needing to be replaced by God's grace with humility? Where do you see this beginning to intersect with your life and thus there's a need for pride and, and its symptoms to be forgiven by Jesus, you and Jesus together uproot it and then plant together humility in its place. Now let's just be clear, the point of this sermon is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The point of this sermon is 
be forgiven and transformed through a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. And in the midst of that relationship, be drawn more into a person of deep love. Let's start to lay this dual track so that as you and I grow in areas of life, we are also growing in our ability to give and receive love. So this weekend, I um, did some interviews at the college. They do this about once a year. Uh, I go and interview students for scholarships. And I've been trying for years to get fired, but it has not worked yet. Um, so if any of you would like to take my place next year, just let me know. It's a fascinating thing because people uh, have all kinds of things. Like, you know, one person um, lives with uh, six other people in a 30-foot in a trailer. And then this other person has traveled the world three times over. And somehow I'm supposed to make some kind of a value judgment about which is more suited for this particular scholarship. And then, of course, later in the day, I brought my daughter, who's two years old and has an extra chromosome. I brought her to one of the events, and she kind of just ran around and acted crazy the whole time, which was great because, again, I'm trying to get fired. <laughs> and so... Um, so, but you take this all in, and this is just like in one town in North Carolina, and people come from all different places. We have all different uh, situations. We've lived different things. We all have different limits and limitations and backgrounds and constraints on our lives. How do we even begin to make sense of what a meaningful life would look like with all those differences? And this is where I praise God as sort of being a real level setter. And he says, meaning and purpose in life is found in something that anybody can do. Whatever your background, whatever your limitations, uh, whatever your aptitudes or whatever, you can do this. It is to become a person of love. It is to become a person marked by the ability to be loved by and love God and be loved by God and love God in return, a person marked by the ability to be loved by and then to love in return other people. And that's not something we do on our own. Out of love, God calls us to himself. Out of love, God brings us close and then nurtures us, sometimes in easy ways, sometimes in hard ways, but nurtures us into being people of love. God does this beautiful work of saying that each of us can become a people of a meaningful life, a purposeful life. We spend so much time trying to get into God's position, and what we realize at the end of life, hopefully, is that what we've really been after is to seek God's character because God is love. And while pride may be the desire to get into God's position, spiritual growth is the desire to take on God's character. And I hope that for all of us. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, or a chance to listen to God about whatever it is He's been stirring in your heart or in your mind. I don't know where the sermon and the music today has intersected with your life, but wherever it has, 
Just take this moment for personal prayer. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to leave the same way we came in. But the truth is that some of us, through sort of an inflated ego, keep you at arm's length because we don't need you or we don't need to ask for help or at least we need to keep up the appearance that we don't need to ask for help. But others of us, Lord, we have a very different uh, issue that keeps you at arm's length, and, and that is that we are fearful. We, we don't have an inflated sense of ourselves. We have a very deflated sense of ourselves. And we struggle to even imagine that you have knit value into us. Lord, I pray from whatever direction we are coming today that we would look into the eyes of Jesus and realize that you gave up your superiority in order to live among us, die among us, and rise from the dead among us so that our lives could go in a different direction, so that we too could be people who learn to love to receive and give love chiefly to you and out of that overflowing to other people. Lord, for those of us who are kind of straddling the fence when it comes to you today, I pray that today would be a day of, of taking a step. And even if we don't know all of what it means of deciding to follow Jesus, away from pride, towards humility, towards a life of God-given purpose. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.